Well, there was a time when people would have said this was a Christian nation and a Christian country with Christian values, but I think that has changed really massively over the last uh, 60 plus years. I was reminded of it actually this last week as I went to the transport subcommittee uh, at the city council chambers and one of the councillors reminded me that uh, Edinburgh is now a secular city and Christianity has no special place within it. Uh, Quite astonishing, even though it's true, to hear it said in a city where the motto of the city is, unless the Lord builds the house, it's laborers labor in vain. So there was a time when the city fathers thought it was important to have a verse from the Bible as a motto for the city, but now we're a secular city, Christianity has no special place within it. That's, That's what's changed. We're a multicultural society, uh, and really now people that go to church are viewed as a kind of a minority interest group that uh, essentially are harmless and irrelevant. Uh, That's how it has been viewed. I think there's been a bit of a shift, though. Uh, Now there are sort of writers who've come along, and they want to say, actually, that Christianity is is actually a bit harmful. Uh, It's dangerous to society that... uh, the problem is uh, religious people who believe what they believe. Um, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, uh, both written uh, bestseller books attacking religion and actually Christianity in particular. Uh, Richard Dawkins wrote The God Delusion and uh, he stated that parents who teach their children uh, Christianity are engaging in a form of child abuse, which is pretty strong stuff. How are we supposed to respond to that? I mean, let me flip it around. How should we view society uh, when there is sort of this increasingly sort of more hostile feel? Um, How should we deal with uh, civic leaders and the the media when it seems that uh, godless secularism trumps any historic Christian convictions? Well, I want you to open your Bibles to see what God has to say to us about that topic, and I'll turn to Titus chapter 3, please. And if you have a, uh, don't have a Bible with you, hopefully there's a red Bible somewhere around you. And if you turn to page uh, 1199, if you open your Bibles and turn to that, that should take you to Titus chapter 3. <clears throat> I've been fighting a head cold all week, so I do apologize. The Apostle Paul is uh, writing to one of his Christian co-workers who is based on the island of Crete. And this is in the first century. And uh, I'm going to read something of what he said to him in chapter 3 in the first eight verses. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness And love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, 
but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. This is God's word. You can see the agenda that Paul had for Titus from the very first verse of his, of his letter, the very first sentence. If you turn over a page and look at chapter 1, verse 1. In it he writes this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And what he's saying is that what you believe shapes how you behave. What you believe is crucially important. It will fundamentally shape your actions. If you believe that the teachings of the Quran call you to defend the honor of Muhammad and that you should kill those who mock Muhammad, well, then you're going to act on those convictions, as we see in the horrific events in Paris and even worse events in northern Nigeria by Boko Haram. What is the impact then of believing the Christian message? Well, he says that trusting gospel truth leads to a godly life. Uh, The the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness, it says in the very first verse of, of this letter. Believing the Christian message leads to a transformed life of doing good, is what the Bible says. And each chapter of this letter deals with this theme in different contexts. So chapter 1 deals with godliness in the church. What does is, what is doing good in the church look like? Uh, chapter 2, godliness in the home. What does doing good in the home look like? And chapter 3, godliness within society. So how should we live as Christians within society? Uh, Paul's writing at a time where Christianity was not... The ethos of the time. This is a first century Rome. Uh, this is a, a multi-ethnic, uh, multi-religious, pagan culture. A time when Caesars ruled with absolute authority. When there were colosseums and all that stuff going on. And, and uh, no problem just uh, persecuting groups and, uh, and, and no problems at all if it was Christians. Now how does he, how does he tell uh, Titus to teach the Christians. Well, Paul has already taught the Christians this, but he reminds Timothy to, uh, to recall it to them. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. So as Christians, whatever political party, indeed whatever political system we live under, we are called to treat those in authority with respect and to be law-abiding as far as possible, as far as fits within God's will. We are to respect and be law-abiding. We're called to be conscientious 
citizens who engage positively and helpfully before those who are in city chambers or local uh, authorities, the Scottish Parliament, the British government. And not only with those in authority, but verse 1 says, with all those that we meet in our community. Look at verse 2. We're not to slander others. Uh, We're not to be argumentative, but to be peaceable. We are to positively be considerate, to be gentle towards others. Uh, If we grasp the truth of the Christian message, this is the sort of behavior that should result in our civic engagement in society. And so my Christian friends here today, um, is this how we relate to our neighbors and our friends, to to the world that we meet outside the church building, outside our home situation? Is this how we engage with people in social media, uh, in Snapchat, in Facebook, in Twitter? I was was tickled by the the evangelistic potential of Facebook in Lee Wynn's testimony. They look so happy. I love that. Uh, I I normally see Facebook as a curse, but there's a positive thing of Facebook. But, uh, you know, how do we deal with others? in social media. Somehow people think that you can behave atrociously. Well, not if you're a Christian. That's not, you know, if we understand the truth of the gospel, we're going to relate differently. Is this the way we drive our cars? With gentleness and consideration? I'll, I'll leave that with you to ponder over your lunches. Do we engage with others with gentleness and graciousness? Now, if the Christians in Crete in the first century needed reminding of this, I think we do too. In a sense, a government or a city chamber should be delighted to deal with Christians because of the godly way that we engage with them. And our Christian faith should actually be a reason for positive engagement with our society with regard to politics, government, law, Uh, with regard to our interactions with the police, with law courts, with our neighbors, uh, in civic life, with arts and uh, sports and all the rest of it, we should be conscientious and considerate citizens. And so Paul says, remind them of that. So it's worth being reminded of that, isn't it? Now why? Why should we be conscientious and considerate citizens? Such as our sinful nature that already some of you are bristling inside saying, well, why? Why should I do that? Well, he goes on to spell the reasons why in verses 3 to 7. He gives us the reasons for such godly behavior. Having reminded them, there are two things that we need to remember. First thing, remember we were once antisocial. Look at how Paul describes what he was like, what Titus was like, and what the Christians on Crete were like before they became Christians in verse 3. At one time... We too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now that's a strong description, don't you think? It's all the more astonishing when you find out that Paul was actually a deeply religious person before he became a Christian. I think if you'd met Paul... Before he became a Christian, you'd be definitely impressed by his, uh, his fine, upstanding uh, Jewish f- 
faith that he was a religious leader of the Jews. But actually Paul, looking back at his old life, describes it in this way. I was foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. I lived in malice and hatred. That's his perspective on his life before he became Christian. Notice he includes himself. This is what we were like. And let me be provocative this morning, suggest really that this is God's assessment of all of us, apart from his grace. At one time, we too were foolish. Now, he's not saying that uh, non-Christian people are stupid. Uh, that would obviously be wrong. Uh, the Apostle Paul himself was uh, an academic. He was, he was a man with great intellect before he became a Christian. What he means is that with regard to knowing God, well... We're without spiritual understanding. That we were foolish with regard to the things of God. And there's just huge ignorance today about what God is really like. Colossal misunderstanding is shown in our society and in our media. More than that, God's willing to say that we're disobedient. And this primarily means disobedience towards God. Disobeying God's good standards. Uh, for our lives, we choose to make up our own standards, our own rules of how we want to run life without God. The Bible says we're also deceived that we live uh, oblivious to the real meaning and purpose of life, which is actually to know God and to glorify God. That's actually why you were made. Uh, we were singing songs about it earlier. We we're hearing it in some of the stories. Uh, we were made by God to know him and live for his glory. And yet, that's radically different to how society wants, to, wants us to think about what our life is about. What we hear in our media and, and throughout society is very much the idea that there's no God. And we're here by accident. And every individual really has their right and has to define their own Morality and their own meaning and their purpose. There is none, so make up your own. That's what society would say. And God's uh, judgment on that is, we're deceived if we think that's the case. It goes on that we're enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Uh, we talk a lot about personal freedoms in our society today, but uh, statistics... Uh, speak of the reality that people are enslaved through addiction to all sorts of things. Addiction to gambling, shopping, alcohol, sex, pornography, drugs, with all the broken relationships and pain that come from that. And Paul goes on, we live in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. This may seem a bit strong, but let's remember the events of Paris. Let's remember the events of Boko Haram. Let's uh, just read a, a Sunday newspaper today. See how many of the stories are filled with basically of stories of people uh, hating and hating one another. Watch 10 minutes of Jeremy Kyle's show. Uh, just read the reports about how people are being cyberbullied and the horrific victimization that's happening through internet trolls. People are even taking their life through the stuff that's being said horrifically on the internet. Now, thankfully, it's not the total story. Thankfully, there's some great things about uh, our, our society that we could talk about, but it's also clear that this biblical description is true. And whether we like to see ourselves in this way or not, this is how God sees us. 
the Bible says it's a perfect description of what we're like. So here's the question. What would we expect a holy God to do in response to a society and people like this? Well, actually, the, 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 the way God has acted is so surprising and wonderful. God has acted to bring about salvation. Look at verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. What's he talking about? He's talking about the coming of Jesus into the world. Who is Jesus? God, our Savior, appearing. The reason that we are singing all these songs about Jesus, and we're delighted to do that, is that we've come to believe what the Bible says about him is true. That in the coming of Jesus, we see the kindness and the love of God, who's actually come and reached to a, a sinful, rebellious world because he, he wants to save us. He could rightly condemn us, judge us, punish us, but he's acted in salvation. And that's the second thing that uh, Paul tells Timothy to remember. Uh, not only that we were once antisocial, but that God saved us and changed us. Instead of God appearing as the judge, he's appeared as the Savior. Now, why did God do that? Is it because we're so lovable? Well, from the description so far, I wouldn't describe that as very lovable, would you? And it goes on, verse 5. He saved us not because of righteous or good things that we had done, but because of his mercy. His mercy. Uh, the people in Crete in the first century, just like us today, deserve nothing except the judgment of God, but God has shown mercy. And not only had God saved them, but he'd also changed them. Changed them from the inside out. Look at the description of verse 5. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. What is a Christian? Well, a Christian is someone who's had a profound experience an authentic Christian is someone who has experienced the life transformation of being born again. As this verse puts it, the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. God comes by his Holy Spirit and he changes us from the inside out. As we trust Jesus and repent of our sins and put our trust in him, there's this brand new life that is happening within us that he brings about by his Holy Spirit. God makes us alive. Our sin uh, corrupted and defiled us, but this new life he gives, it, it's like he cleans us from the inside. We were dirty with sin, but he's made us clean, scrubbed us up, and made us acceptable before him. He drenched us with his Holy Spirit. It is a, it is a dazzling description of Christianity, of, of what it means to be a Christian. Someone who has been born again from the inside out. And actually it turns upside down a lot of preconceptions people have of Christianity. Some people think that uh, Christians think that they're better than other people. 
they, 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 they think that Christians are some sort of moral policemen who look down their noses, who think they're a little bit superior than others. But actually, can you see that when we understand what God has done, it's completely the other way around. Uh, Christians are those who realize how enslaved and foolish we were. But that God has acted out of his amazing grace and kindness. It's not because of anything good that we have done that we've been changed. It's all of his mercy. And uh, that just changes everything. Born again Christians should be those marked by humility towards others. Apart from God's grace, we're in the same shoes as everybody else. We shouldn't be uh, snooty moral policemen. Would we be any different apart from grace is the biblical perspective. And here's the wonderful truth. Because salvation is all down to the mercy and the kindness of God, then there's hope for everyone. There's hope for every person. Whatever the backstory has been, because of the kindness and the mercy of God, there's hope for every single person person who will come and put their trust in this Jesus, God our Savior who appears. God's Holy Spirit can can transform a person in a moment and bring them new spiritual life. And uh, really, we're seeing five examples of that. People from different backgrounds, different life experiences, uh, different stories, and yet they've all experienced this, this same thing of becoming born again by the Holy Spirit as they put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a wonderful thing that we can have a fresh start. Uh, about, I don't know, 10 years ago when I was living in the States, there was a whole lot of TV shows called Extreme Makeover. And I used to find them endlessly fascinating. Extreme makeup was not just simply you went and had your makeup done and your hair. The girls with the makeup generally. Um, but they, they would actually do cosmetic surgery. And you would go to the, the dentist and he would give you a brand new set of wallies or look, look, you know, nice little shiny white teeth and straighten them all up. And, 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 then, and they would sort of suck bits of fat out of places and inject them elsewhere and re-sculpt your body. And, 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 and it would be this extreme makeover. And, you know, it was very exciting, you know, before and after. Hey, you never had a party. Whoa, don't recognize you. Don't see any facial expressions either, but there we are. Uh, What I find fascinating 10 years on is that now in the UK, there's a lot of TV reality shows about botched cosmetic surgery. Have you noticed that? Operations that went wrong. Even more fascinating, right? You know, great, yeah, you can change the outside, but the truth is you you don't change the inside person, do you? You know, that that person will still get old. Things still sag. Things get botched. And we're not dealt with the inside. Well, what God is doing here is something so much better, so much greater. To make people new from the inside. To forgive the mistakes and sins of our past. To make us clean. To make us wash clean without a guilty conscience. To make us different sort of people who uh, are now loving, considerate, 
obedient, ready to do whatever is good, to bring us into his family and to make us heirs of eternal life. That's what he goes on to say, verse 7. So that having been justified by his grace, that is, declared right before God by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is all part of God's amazing rescue plan, a result of his salvation. Not just that he begins to change us now, but there's a a real future hope that we can look forward to so that death is not something that we fear and that we can live our lives with purpose and meaning. And I wonder today, have you experienced this? Uh, We've heard five people say today that they have. And that's why we're delighted to uh, baptize them today. Have you experienced this? Do you know it's possible that you could experience this if you'll come and put your faith in the Lord Jesus, if you'll turn from your sins, you could do that today. We'd love to help you. Come and talk to someone today. Uh, Come and fill out a connect card and let us know that you want to find out some more. Maybe you're here and you're still skeptical. There's still some big questions you want to ask to get clear about this. Well, that's exactly what the Glad You Ask course is for, to go and ask those big questions. We're not frightened of tough questions. We've probably asked them ourselves at one stage. Why don't you think about that as a next step? But it's a privilege today to to witness um, uh, these baptisms as a a picture to us today of of what has happened. Um, As they go into the water, it symbolizes that their old life without Jesus is dead and buried as they are put under the water. And as they come out of the water, it's a symbol of their cleansed new life with Jesus. So uh, a reminder, be conscientious and, and considerate citizens. Uh, and remember, he says, we were once antisocial, but God saved us and changed us. And finally, uh, resolve to live a saved life of doing good. That's what he says in verse 8. Have a look at that again. Verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. It's worth reminding ourselves about, isn't it? It's a trustworthy saying, it says. It's an excellent and profitable thing to remind ourselves about. That Because of these amazing gospel truths, we ought to resolve to live a saved life of doing good. And my hope is that uh, this morning, that each of our friends getting baptized today for Richard and Lee Wynn and Angus and Cameron and Ben, that they'll look back at this moment, a definite moment where they said, well, yes, I resolve publicly to live a saved life of doing good. That's a challenge to all of us who've been baptized, who are here as Christians. In what ways can we uh, better this week live out this saved life of good works that God has called us to? We don't do them because they make us saved, but because we're saved, we do them. As we consider the amazing grace and mercy of God, we resolve to live this godly life, eager to do what is good today. And really, that is the best way to defend Christianity here in Edinburgh and in the United Kingdom. It's the best way to commend the gospel 
to an unbelieving world. Um, to be good samples of what Christ is wanting to do. Let's pray. Father God, we, we've looked into the mirror of your word and it's a bit painful to see something of the ugliness that it reflects back to us of what we can be like. And yet we thank you that as we look more intently, we see that you've provided the solution in your son. And we want to thank you so much for the Lord Jesus who willingly offered up his life upon the cross to pay for our sins. We want to praise you for him that you raised from the dead as a declaration that our sins are fully forgiven and that we can be right with you and that there is a a life to come that we can enter into. Father, we want to thank you that uh, we've heard these five people's stories. We ask that every one of us would know and have a story of your grace that changes and transforms our life. Father, for us who have trusted Christ, we ask that you would strengthen us by your spirit this week, that we may live godly lives uh, in our church, in our homes, uh, in our jobs, in this world. We ask this, that you would be glorified in Christ's precious name. Amen.